0: We've been looking at the uh, book of Revelation, and I I want to say a couple things before, uh, before I read the text. One of them is that the approach that we're taking is a specific way of reading the book of Revelation. It's not the only way. There are people that read it differently. There are some very good scholars, as a matter of fact, who have taken a completely different approach. Um... I, I don't agree with that approach, and I think that there's, there's problems with it, but the way that uh, we are reading it is to read it according to its own internal uh, interpretation, the way the book is explaining itself, and it is extremely symbolic, and I don't think you want to try to tie it to a specific chronology. If you do, it becomes a little bit unmanageable, and what happens is you have to start putting things in. You actually have to start adding things to have it make sense. And so we're going we're gonna to stay with this uh, to the very end. And if you have questions, we do a Q&A afterwards. Be happy to answer any questions that you may have. Today we're going to read from chapter 17. And as we've been doing, I'm going to uh, ask you just to listen as I read the text. This is the way the church would have heard it the first time. They would have had these images coming into their mind. And that's how I want you all to experience it. And then when we actually get down and start going into the text, you can look at your Bible or the text is printed in your bulletin. But for now, just listen and see what you see. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters." with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk." And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman." and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come." This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, and one is. The other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, And it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw, or ten kings, who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast." They will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them for He is the Lord of lords and King of kings and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are people and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw They and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. The pressure that comes on anyone who reads this text, uh, particularly this one and perhaps the one uh, in the previous chapter on 666, the pressure to puzzle it out, to figure out what is he talking about, this that was and is not and is to come and will go into the abyss and these seven heads and ten horns and all of that, the pressure on us to puzzle it out and try to find the place in chronology uh, where these things are going to happen is uh, overwhelming. I'll be the first to admit it. And I think that if if you are tempted to go and say, okay, now I'm going to really grind down into the, to the particulars of history and I'm going to locate these kingdoms and these people. Uh, it is going to become extremely frustrating and you have got to admit to yourself, I have just left the road that I have been on in interpreting this book as it is meant to be interpreted, which is in pictures, not puzzles. Pictures, symbols that point to something else, signs that point to something that aren't the thing themselves, but are pointing to something else. And so I really want to, uh, I'm going to be, and look, the pressure's on me too. I would. I, in fact, I think I could come up here and I could bamboozle you and tell you this king and this and that and the other thing. No one would know. But I'm going to stay with the text and I'm going to help and we're going to walk through it and you're going to see that this particular text is absolutely magnificent once it is understood in the overall context of the book of Revelation. The very key to understanding this text, look down at verse 14. They'll make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with with Him are called and chosen and faithful that is the key to understanding this text and honestly folks it's the key to understanding the entire book of revelation as well look the name armageddon which we talked about last week the battle of armageddon listen to what uh, dr vern poethrus says in his commentary about the battle of armageddon because it it shines a great bright light on the way to read the book of Revelation. Listen, the name Armageddon, Armageddon, is symbolic. And so it cannot be used, listen, it cannot be used as a basis for speculations about the geographical details of the final battle. In any case, the final battle is preeminently spiritual in character, and attempts to correlate it with maneuvers of particular national armies, miss the point. And that's precisely what I've been trying to get across to you. It misses the the point to say, well, what armies are these and where are they? Maybe it's China. Maybe it's China and North Korea and, and Russia and they're going to come and attack Israel. And maybe this, you know, the U- United States, of course, we're the good guys. We're going to come and we're going to save them. And, and, you know, there's going to be all this. We, we go around and around. You cannot do that. That is not the point of the text. John is not looking into the far future and predicting Some national geopolitical picture. He's just not doing that. He's talking to them about their current situation. And he's telling us what the world will be like forever. Until he comes again. To correlate it with maneuvers of a particular national army misses the point. The battle is between, listen folks, The battle of Armageddon is between the servants of God and the enemies of God. Not between nations of the world. Not between nations of the world. All nations on the world today have both Christians and non-Christians. So which nation is the Christian nation? You lose, you lose all perspective if you go that way, and I'm not going to do it, and so listen carefully. If you don't like, if you want to go a different way, it's okay, but I'm going to give you a perspective I think is faithful to the text and faithful to the message that he wants us in the 21st century to have as well as the 1st century hearers. So we're going to look for the next couple of weeks at this literary, this is a literary unit. It's a, one big picture, and it starts here in chapter 17, goes to chapter 19, and it's all about the fall of Babylon, and the relationship of Babylon is harlot Babylon and the beast and their relationship. And so, we'll do what we've been doing each week. We're going to first ask the question, what do we see? And I can't cover every single thing that we see, but I'm going to give you some of what I think... Uh, John wants us to see the the big things. And then uh, why he's telling it. Why he's even has this in here. What is he saying? And then finally, who do you see? So look, what do we see first? The first thing we see is uh, this, this woman seated on this beast. And she is called a harlot. Have any of you, don't have to raise your hands just if you haven't. If you have seen this movie, it is exactly uh, what's going on here. The movie is uh, with Meryl Streep and Anne Hathaway, The Devil Wears Prada. Have any of you seen it? This is this. This is this. The, 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 the external beauty and seduction... Of the New York, Rome, and Paris fashion world is what is in view in this movie, *The Devil Wears Prada*. And it's really it's a it's a comedic drama. It's it's uh, very funny, and it's also very very true, and it is very revealing. Because in the in the, and I don't want to give you a spoiler if you haven't seen it. It's okay, uh, but there's a scene in the movie where Meryl Streep is this put together editor of this fashion magazine, and she is always in control, always together, always great, made up perfectly on the outside. and But there's a scene later in the movie when things start to come unraveled. She calls her assistant, Anne Hathaway, to come and help her because she's going through an emotional crisis. And you see her, and only an actress as great as Meryl Streep could pull this off with no makeup and no nothing. She looks pretty ragged. And this is what John is saying. Do you, you look out there and you see all this beauty and glory and majesty? It is seductive. It's a harlot. It has superficial attractiveness. It looks good on the outside. And it is alluring. He's not saying it's not alluring. He's saying it really is alluring. In fact, later on, he is amazed. And the word that he uses in Greek for amazed is a word that means he's astonished. He's appalled. He's terrified. He can't believe what he sees because it is so overwhelming. Because this devil's wearing Prada She's wearing the designer clothes, the jewels, the power, the authority. The, 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 she's driving the car, the BMW or the Mercedes. She's got, the right, she's got all the right stuff that everybody wants in every culture. It's not just America. We, you know, Americans are very materialistic, very consumeristic. But it's not just us. The whole world is like that. Poor people are like this. Rich people are like this. Everybody is like this. All humanity. She sits on many waters. In verse 15, he defines what waters are. He says they are people and nations and multitudes and languages. He tells you what they are. In fact, I would argue and I'm going to argue that he's telling us everything right up front. There's no mystery, there's no puzzle here. He's telling us what he means. He's explaining it. So this woman, this superficial attractiveness, this harlot, is is sucking people into her control by this outward appearances, power, money, sex, wealth, you name it, whatever it is, on a personal level, on a national level, doesn't matter it's overwhelming and it is powerful and it is she is sitting on people she's controlling humanity and she's getting her power she's getting her authority from this beast she's riding on his back which and and the colors that are used scarlet and red and this and that they're different words in Greek interestingly enough the purple but they're all of a similar family there it John is saying to you they're the same color without being exactly the same color the woman is not the beast But she's getting her power from the beast and the beast is getting his power from the dragon and the dragon has deceived everybody including the kings of the earth to give their power and their royal power to her and to it and to them. And they have corrupted the world. There's ugliness underneath. Look at verses 5 and 6 when he starts to explain what her name is. Fascinating. Her name is mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes. The mother of harlots. She's not just any harlot. She's the one that spawns them all. And you can't even imagine the number of places and ways in which we have been seduced. I'm talking about just human beings and what's important and what's not and where we invest our lives sometimes. Her cup, this goblet she's carrying, are full of obscenities. And she is drunk with the wine of sexual immorality and the blood of the saints. You see, folks, John is saying to you in graphic, graphic terms, he is telling you and me and everybody else that will listen to the book, this is life and death. Give yourself to her. Take the beast's mark on yourself and you're doomed. You have, no, you have no hope. There's nowhere to go. You know, I have stood over a lot of graves. I've buried a lot of people as a pastor and I've stood and I've looked down in the hole. And it's a sobering moment as a pastor to look down into a hole with a casket inside or look at an urn that's full of ashes. And then I have to, I've done it over and over and over again. And I have to ask myself, is life and death? What am I investing my life in? There's ugliness underneath. And then in the end, you see, John is paints this, he's a brilliant, brilliant author, and he paints this incredible picture in verse 16 on. He goes about these ten horns, these kings, and how the, the bee, everybody turns on her in the end. You see, once you strip away the facade. What you have underneath is something that is not just ugly, it is, it is worthy of hatred. Once you have been betrayed, and once you see the betrayer, once you get, you actually know what's happened to you, you want to strike out at them, you want to destroy them. And so they end up devouring her, and he uses, again, very graphic language. Listen to another commentator. The woman is a visionary symbol that requires, listen, explicit interpretation like the seven stars in the hand of the Son of Man. That's in chapter 1. The angel provides this interpretation. He knows how hard it is going to be for us in time and eternity to try to figure, you know, where are we with all this? What does this mean? So he gives us an explicit understanding of what it is. And I'm going to walk you through it. We're going to go through it very, uh, very carefully. The angel provides the interpretation, explaining the mystery to John. The woman, listen to me now, the woman represents fallen humanity, fallen human culture. In all the apparent glory of its achievement and the true repugnance, of its arrogance. And he uses these words like sexual immorality. It's pornea. He uses the word sexual immorality to talk about not the act of sex. He's not talking about the sex act. He's talking about spiritual infidelity. He's talking about us giving our hearts, our minds, our souls loving something not instead of God necessarily. Sometimes we do love things instead of God. But it's loving things along with God. It's adding things to Him. That was the great sin of the Old Testament. Was not replacing God with some idol. It was adding idols to the worship of God. That is what Israel was constantly in trouble they were in trouble for what is called syncretism. They were not in trouble for taking the, 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 uh, uh, the, the ark out of the temple and putting up the statue of Dagon. That wasn't the problem. They put the statue of, statue of Dagon up next to the statue, or uh, next to the ark. And then there was Molech, and there was Chemosh, and there was Baal, and there was everybody else. They're all one big happy family, a pantheon of gods. And look, folks, that is the seduction. It's for us to say at the very base of our lives, I've, I, Jesus, fine, I've got to have Jesus. I like Jesus. He's a great guy. Jesus and I are friends. He's a friend of mine. And I'm his friend. But I've got to have these other things too. And as long as I have all these things, then we're all happy. And the book of Revelation is saying you can't have that. You have to be marked in your forehead with the name of the the, the Lamb, the God, our God, the way these people are marked with the God that they have chosen. So he destroys them with their sexual immorality, their spiritual infidelity, and they're drunk. She's drunk. The people are drunk. There's a stupor, an intoxication, a senselessness that can overtake us. Why, the things around us, and you know what I'm talking about, have any of you ever gone to look for a new car? See how many liars we have in our church. I, you know, you just that simple thing, go look for a car, a new car, could be a used car, a new car. Now the new cars, you know, they put a scent, a pheromone. They put in those cars so that you can't resist it, Right? And you go and you look at the car and what happens? It's almost like you get intoxicated. It's going to be the greatest car I've ever had. I can't can't wait to have this car. You drive it off the lot two weeks later, what do you have? Buyer's remorse. Especially when the first payment comes due. The beast, listen, the beast portrays Rome from the perspective of its physical threat. So the beast, what I've been telling you, is the beast... Was the overwhelming military, political, cultural power of Rome and every kingdom after it that pressures by overt force that threatens us with torture and murder and killing to get us to give up our faith? But the harlot, she's just as dangerous. The beast wants us to compromise. But he transcends all the cultures and all the kingdoms in Daniel chapter 7 is what this commentator is talking about. So also, listen, the harlot Babylon shows us Rome from the perspective of the spiritual threat of compromise through economic seduction. She also transcends Rome and encompasses every expression of idolatry and worship throughout the ages. They just came out with a film. In fact, I'm, I'm going to get it, and hopefully we can show it here in the church. It's called The American Gospel. Have any of you seen it floating out there on the, uh, on the web right now? Nobody? It's about the health, wealth, and prosperity movement that has sprung up in the, in the United States, but is now spread throughout the world. And uh, th- these, these churches preach uh, a message of health and wealth. You can have money, you can have... A, God wants you to be rich. There are these guys on television that I make fun of sometimes. But listen, it is not a funny matter that people in the United States have tied their Christianity so tightly to being well-moneyed and well-blessed and having control over their health that we have reduced Christianity to that. And John was appalled. If John came to the United States today and saw what we do and how we act in the American church, and I'm talking about it in a large general sense, I think he would be appalled. And so he tells us what the relationship is, and this I've got to do this quickly, but he tells us the relationship between the beast, this is the beast that rose from the sea, and the harlot, Babylon. Look at verse 8. This is the beast that once was, that now is not, but will come out of the abyss and go to destruction. Right away. When we read those words, because it's in sort of a uh, riddle form, the form of a riddle, we think, oh my goodness, I've got to puzzle this out, like a riddle. I've got to figure out, who's he talking about? But he's already told us who he's talking about, and he's done it repeatedly over and over throughout the text. Let me give you, just very quickly, because I don't have a lot of time, but I'm happy to answer some questions if you have them in the Q&A afterwards. The beast who once was now is not and will come out of the abyss and go to destruction most commentators the good ones are saying look he is if you just look take the book of revelation as your guide he is mocking the beast he is making fun of the beast he's not giving you a riddle that you're puzzling out he's telling you exactly who he's talking about he's mocking the beast and he's comparing him to who I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the One who is, I was, and I am to come, and I hold the keys of death, hell, and the grave. Repeated over and over throughout the book of Revelation, this title for our great God and King Jesus, and now John is mocking Him, and saying He's the beast that once was, and he is not. And when he does come out, he's going straight into the judgment. He will only be around, in fact, the text says, maybe an hour. Maybe one hour. His time is so short. Then in verse 9, look at 9 through 13. This is where he's going to give this, this exposition of, of who this what this relationship is all about. And it can be it's, there's a dizzying array of possibilities. And look, folks, I spent... Mottie V will tell you, I was in agony yesterday looking at charts and things and trying to... And I said, how am I going to communicate? I'm going to do this the best way that I can. There is a dizzying array of possibilities. If, if you want each one of these seven kings, if you treat it like a riddle in a puzzle and try to figure out which... Roman Empire, is he talking about which empire? Is he talking, is he talking about uh, Chaldean, Babylonia? Is he talking about the Medo-Persians? Is he talking about Greece? Is he talking about Rome? Is he talking about Julius Caesar, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula? This is just one list. Claudius, Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, Vespasian, Titus, Domitian. Is he talking about Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Medo-Persia? The Greeks, the Seleucids who took over from the Greeks? Is he talking about Rome? What in the world? Who are these seven kings and seven hills and seven and ten horns and all of this? What is he doing? Let me just read this to you. I hate to do this. You know, I don't do this very often in church, but I'm going to do it because if you will listen, this will, this will save your life. If he was giving us a puzzle, somebody would have figured it out already. Because the Roman uh, historiographers were very precise. We know exactly the years these kingdoms were in existence and when these kings reigned. No question about it. We could have puzzled it out. The solution to the puzzle may be simpler. If understanding the message of the seven or eight kings is not depending... On the historiographic expertise, listen. And I've been saying this all along and so I want you to pay attention because this will help you and we'll get to the end in a moment. Seven symbolizes completeness. So it shows that the beast's reign apparently holds sway over the whole history of fallen humanity. Yet, from the perspective of God's plan to establish His kingdom under the scepter of the Lamb, the beast's time is drawing short. Five out of seven kingdoms have fallen. To be sure, John's readers are not yet at the very end of the conflict of the ages. The one king who has not yet come and must remain a little while shows that though the dragon has been decisively defeated by the blood of the lamb and therefore has only a short time, nevertheless, the church must be prepared to endure further suffering. The church must persevere. Not only under pressure of the present levels of suffering, the seventh king, But also under the coming, crushing conspiracy of its enemies at the end, the beast that is to arise as an eighth king. And that beast will arise. We don't know when, we don't know where, and you won't know it when it happens. But he will come. He will come from the abyss, and he will deceive the nations for one hour, and then he will be cast into destruction. In our present text, this last battle, we talked about it last week, the Battle of Armageddon. This last battle is pictured in the future coming to the beast out of the abyss as an eighth king who belongs to the seven. He's descended from the seven, which is what the text says. At least as the climatic expression of their ignorance toward God and hostility towards people. At the root, at its root, every pagan world empire is just, listen, just another incarnation of the same satanic spirit that will reach full intensity just before it shatters, before the glory of the Lamb and goes to destruction. This is what the message has always been. Throughout the book with these symbols and these numbers, seven and 10 are not riddles, not trying to get you to figure it all out, but telling you, this is complete. This beast with seven heads and ten horns is not the European common market. It's not Vladimir Putin. It's not Donald Trump, which is probably relief to some of you. It's not Henry Kissinger, it's not Richard Nixon. It wasn't Ronald Reagan. It's all powers and rulers and authorities, perfect and complete evil, that inhabit nations and peoples throughout history. And we see it today in countries in other parts of the world, in our country, thank God, we still have at least some salt and light still in the United States, and hopefully that will last. But in other places... People are facing real beasts, real kings and authorities and powers that are crushing and killing and murdering. And here, in our country, the danger is deception. And in the future, even though five have fallen and one is, and an eighth one is to come, and these 10 future kings, kingdoms, powers, they're not just 10, it's just 10, meaning they are going to be overwhelming number of them, and there's a lot of them, and they're just going to be coming and coming and coming. Ten is a number of, of indefiniteness, but definite. It's many. And so we can expect and should expect to see in our day, in our lives. The beast at work. The seven heads, the seven hills, the seven mountains were, for John and his audience, Rome. And every power, listen, Rome, and every power like it till the end. You following what I'm saying? The seven kings, five have fallen, one is, one is yet to come, and the beast who will arise from the abyss, the text is very clear, he's coming, We don't know when and where and how, but he is going to come. God's going to let him out. He's going to wage war uh, on the earth, uh, in the heavens, in the spiritual realm for a very short time, and he's going to be crushed. Past, present, and future kings and the beast in the end are defeated. And the ten horns, these ten kings or kingdoms are confederate with the beast. They are all kings and kingdoms that will forever be giving their authority and their rule to the beast and to the, to the prostitute. Why are we seeing it? Why is John going to these lengths and painting these dramatic, yet, listen, it, the genius behind it is amazing, timeless pictures. You could be in the 23rd century with, with Captain Kirk on the, on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. And this will still make sense it'll still make sense in a thousand years from now, a million years from now. Because the pictures and the images transcend time and space so that they're meaningful, not only to the first audience, the seven hills being Rome and these emperors being Roman emperors who are killing them to us today. There are many iterations, Babylon, Rome, Germany, France, England, Russia, Who knows? China. We don't know. There is cosmic conflict throughout the ages. And John is telling the church, don't be surprised. Live your life. Live fully. Live joyfully. We are in the already not yet. How many times have I explained that to you? If you don't have that paradigm in your mind of the already not yet, Christianity simply does not make sense folks the Bible starts to really get strange and people have done a lot of strange things with the scriptures yes we have oppressed people in ways that we will be spanked you won't believe what's going to happen to some people and if I'm wrong about all this I'm the one that's going to burn none of you will burn thank God right So who do we see? Look, let me finish very quickly. They will make war on the Lamb, verse 14. These powers throughout the ages have made war against the Lamb. You know, nobody, nobody is, as John Stott says and ha, ha, said and has said for many years, no one is indifferent to Jesus. Nobody just says, oh, Jesus, he's kind of a nice guy. I kind of like him. I take him or leave him. Nobody's indifferent to him. People either love, either like Tim Keller has said, you either get down on your knees and you worship Him as King and Lord and God or some part of you despises Him. There's no in-between. You cannot be indifferent to Jesus Christ. And Jesus, the way He conquers is the same way He's asking us to conquer. Jesus conquered death How? How did He conquer death? By dying. By taking up His cross and dying, He conquered death. And He asks us to do no less. I will have no other God before me in my presence, in front of me, And Jesus told His disciples over and over, leave everything, come and follow Me. And He's saying the same thing to you and I today. Leave everything, let nothing capture your heart. Let nothing mark your forehead or your hand. Let nothing be ultimate in your life but Me. Jesus conquered death by dying for you, as you, in your place, to remove sin And darkness from you. So that you could live as children of light. And we conquer the same way. Let me leave you just with this. Very briefly. The Apostle Paul said this. Join me. Join me. In suffering for the gospel. By the power of God. Who has saved us. And called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us by Jesus Christ before the beginning of time. Our names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But it has now been revealed to us through our Savior who has destroyed death, listen, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to hold him. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. Death, swallowed up in victory. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Father, thank You so much for never giving up on Your people, for reminding us generation after generation of our primary allegiance to our great King and Savior, to bow our knee, to give up everything for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of your kingdom to put everything at your feet. I pray you will help us do that. We are living in a land that is flowing with milk and honey and we're drowning in it. God help us, save us and have mercy on us and open our eyes, give us generous hearts, deeply committed hearts, loving hearts. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.